Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to a new year here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us. We're just coming from our holiday hiatus and coming back to a very important topic that we're going to be discussing here on today's show. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually going to um, jump right over to page one news um, because we've got uh, some important things to share with you here at the uh, the top of the show. Just as a reminder, this is a live call-in show. Please dial in to 347 324-3080 or certainly uh, make sure that you are bookmarking tedhart.com where you will be able to go back and listen to and share the podcast from this and all of our shows uh, for we've got over a hundred, uh, more than a hundred uh, podcasts uh, available for you free of charge. Um, also, you can join us over in the chat room today. I see some folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. You can also email me your questions if you're super shy and would like to email those over to me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, as always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. If I seem a little somber here at the uh, the top of the show, it's because I am. Uh, I am. It is not my pleasure at all to uh, note if you have not uh, already seen the uh, the news over the the last uh, uh, several days of the passing of a true icon in the nonprofit global uh, sector. Tony Elisher uh, has passed away. I'm just going to share with you um, uh, what I posted about him and then uh, some news here for the Nonprofit Coach listening audience. Uh, Tony is a true force of nature who challenged us all to be creative and bring our best ideas to fundraising. It never occurred to me that Tony wouldn't be with us. He had more energy than all of us put together. He seemed to always be everywhere, all around the planet. That energy is now at rest. And the challenge for all of us is to pick up that torch and to make certain fundraising continues to be lit by Tony's magic and to make sure that we document and note and pass along uh, the wonderful wisdom and energy of Tony Elisher. We will have a special edition of the Nonprofit Coach on February 2nd 
uh, two weeks from today at 12 noon Eastern. Uh, this special tribute show of the nonprofit coach will celebrate the life and talent of Tony Elisher. Uh, I wanted to ask everyone who learned from Tony, cared about Tony, uh, and felt that his special energy should live on to please call into show and to share your tribute memorial to his contrib- considerable talent an enormous body of work and of course the dial in number for that show as always here on the nonprofit coach is 3473243080 so i i want to uh, tell you that uh, tony meant a great deal to me as he did to a lot of people uh and i hope that uh, you will plan on joining us and make sure that that particular podcast of the nonprofit coach is the most perfect memorial uh, to a wonderful public servant and servant to the nonprofit uh, community. Um, that having uh, been said, we do um, have business to attend to today here on the nonprofit coach. I'm going to try to pick up uh, the energy, and one way that uh, I can do that uh, is by welcoming George Hamilton back here to the nonprofit coach with the CFRE minute. So, George, I apologize for being a little bit somber. This is not news that any of us uh, uh, liked to have to share. Uh, Tony was a considerable talent, um, but uh, could you share with us uh, what is new over at CFRE? Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate you having us uh, to start the new year, um, and it, it's been a, you know, a really exciting period of time at CFRE International since last we were on the show. Um, we have a new chair of our board of directors, uh, Marnie Hill CFRE, who's the senior manager at Leg- of Legacy Giving at the Nitty Red Cross, has assumed the role of chair from Phil Schumacher CFRE, ACFRE, um, who actually remains on the board as the immediate past chair. Um, so there's a, there's you know a transition in leadership. Um, additionally, um, you know we've discussed on previous shows the the changes that came to the CFRE um, application requirements um, effective January one two thousand sixteen. Um, so I wanted to make sure that all your listeners. Um, we're aware that the updated online application uh, reflecting those changes has, has now been launched on the CFRE website. Um, so, you know, if you go on, online and you're working on your application, your application is now going to be based on the new application requirements and it will be tracking points um, according to those standards. Um, additionally, the the deadline for application to the first CFRE testing window of 2016 is coming up on January 31st, um, and the testing dates for that window are February 1 through March 31. Um, so, if you know your listeners, any of your listeners are are close to being ready to submit their application, just want to make sure that they were aware of those dates um, so that they can start off the new year um, by achieving their CFRE certification. And of course, you've shared with us in in the past that those that are considering applying and and uh, then sitting for the exam uh, is you folks have a lot more testing sites now than uh, than you did in years past. That that is correct. Our partnership with with Pearson View as our testing provider um, is now a year old, um, and that that really multiplied the number of available testing sites uh, by a by a factor of of ten. Um, Inter- including not just a lot more testing sites in, in North America, but also much more readily available testing sites in other areas of the world. Um, in fact, we uh, since we last talked, we actually entered into a participating organization partnership with the Brazilian Fundraisers Association. So that's very exciting um, for us and I think for, you know, that community of fundraisers because it will extend the ability to to achieve the certification um, at a discounted rate to the, to the fundraising professionals in Brazil um, and help that, that philanthropic sector be, be supported by professional certification um, more well, readily. That, that is terrific news and, of course, continues uh, the ability for CFRE to serve a global community. Exactly. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to share with your listeners is is that you know 2015 was another a strong year of growth for the CFRE credential um, worldwide. Um, we saw over a four percent increase in the total number of, of people holding the credential as of the end of the year. Um, so we're at nearly 5,700 now worldwide CFRE certificates. Um, and additionally, applications for initial certification grew by by 10 percent year over year from 2014. Um, we had nearly 800 new at 
uh, initial applications for certification in 2015. So that's a second straight year of of strong growth for the credential, um, and really it really speaks to how the CFRA credential is is expanding in terms of its impact in the philanthropic community worldwide. Congratulations to uh, to everyone at CFRE. These sorts of advancements and growth in the program do not happen uh, without uh, serious planning uh, and an attention to detail. And, and, of course, you know here on the, the Nonprofit Coach, we encourage all of our listeners to consider sitting for the CFRE exam. It's an important measure of your uh, professional commitment uh, to the work that we all do, but also allows you to stand and be tested uh, against your peers. And I think that says a lot about a professional who's willing to do that. Any other updates yes. uh, for this month uh, for CFRE? No, that that really covers it. Um, again, appreciate you having us on the show, and I look forward to the next time we can, we can uh, speak again. Terrific. Well, we look forward to uh, having you back here again next month for the CFRE Minute. That's George Hamilton, Marketing and Membership Manager at CFRE International. Thank you so much, George, for joining us today here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you very much, Ted. And uh, now uh, we're going to head right over to this very important discussion about donor-advised funds as we turn the page to page two. So today's show is inspired by an opinion piece that was posted in the Chronicle of Philanthropy by Roger Cullenvoe. Uh, with the title, Congress Needs to Send a Message that Commercial Advised Funds Are About Giving, Not Saving. Uh, There's a lot that is said uh, in this opinion piece. It's clearly a target uh, to a lot of very large donor-advised funds. Uh, By disclosure, as I have here on the show many times, I am CEO of CAF America Donor-Advised Funds uh, with expertise in international uh, giving. And I do want to just share with you as we tee up the discussion today that uh, Mr. Colinvoe, uh ends his uh, article here uh, by saying that uh, the, there should be policy uh, action taken. He says public policy must always strike the right balance between accommodating donor preferences and the needs of America's nonprofits, requiring advised funds to spend their money within a set period of time will continue to allow what donors care about, having an efficient and easy way to give, but it will also focus the public's attention on what matters most, getting money out to charities that are working hard every day to improve our communities, our nation, and the world. And today um, we did invite uh, Roger Colombo, uh, who is a professor of law at Catholic University of America, to participate today. He declined uh, to do that, which is, which is a shame, because I think there is quite a bit in this article that should be defended, uh, and I think to have a public uh, opportunity to do that, I would think that most people who want to stand behind their work would jump at the chance to do that. But we do have two fine gentlemen who are going to join us who have both posted on the Chronicle Flansby their opinions and their insight into this article. Um, we have uh, with us today Alan Cantor, uh, who is a principal of Alan Cantor Consulting, a firm that works with community-based nonprofit organizations on issues of resource development and governance. Uh, we also have uh, with us today Rob Mitchell, uh, who has been a guest here on the show before and is the CEO of Atlas of Giving. Uh, Rob is currently CEO of Atlas of Giving. He is one of the most successful and experienced fundraising professionals. And, of course, as we've mentioned here on this show, uh, one of the things that Rob brings to his work uh, is the ability to look at data, understand data, crunch data, and make it available to those who may not understand what data means uh, in and of themselves. So, um, Alan and Rob, first of all, welcome here to a new year of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, Ted. Good to be here. So I'm going to start off uh, with with Alan, if uh, if if you don't mind, Rob, since you've been a guest here on the show uh, many times. I want to uh, thank Alan for being a guest here on the show, and and to start off, if you could just um, either read or paraphrase your the comments that you made on the Chronicle Philanthropy uh, site uh, in response uh, to this article. Well, I'll, I'll paraphrase them, and I've 
written quite a bit in the Chronicle and other places uh, about this, Ted. Um, yeah, there's people think that I and Roger and others are uh, absolutely against donor advised funds, and we're not. Uh, but I think we, we're, we're there are a small group of us who I think represent a much larger group, which are which um, are the nonprofits of America, the ones that actually deliver services, uh, the charitable organizations, who are deeply concerned about the significant growth of donor-advised funds. And um, we're not calling for the end of donor-advised funds. We actually think they're they're really um, a useful tool in philanthropy. But we are calling for um, uh, a requirement that the funds that go in and that give the donors full charitable deductibility at the time of the gift, uh, that they be required to go out the door uh, to to charitable organizations within a certain number of years. And we are arguing about that. Um, uh, I think the, the debate started back in 2011 with a New York Times op-ed by Professor Ray Madoff, and she called for a seven-year distribution. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee in a tax proposal suggested a five-year spend down so that funds that go in 2016 would need to be distributed to charity by 2021. Um, I, I, I think those might be a little too tight, but the, the, but the point is whether it's uh, five years, seven years, or 15 years that the funds that go in and that are essentially taxpayer subsidized uh, through the charitable deduction should, should go to the public good before too long. And uh, without any comment on that, I'm going to ask Rob Mitchell to state um, a paraphrasing of the comments that he's made on this topic. Well, first to say, Ted, that uh, as CEO of the Atlas of Giving, we're keeping our pulse on the finger, or keeping our finger on the pulse of American philanthropy uh, all the time. Um, we we measure philanthropy in the United States monthly by um, sector, source, and state, and we also provide an updated forecast of charitable giving. And uh, I would say that donor-advised funds are the fastest-growing contributor to the charitable economy. There's no question about that. The, the facts support that uh, and are well-documented. They allow a low cost of entry. Um, the investment growth uh, that they provide um, meets strategic philanthropic goals of uh, individuals and families, and they have the, been the biggest additive to the charitable economy in the last decade. There's no question about that. Enacting a government-imposed floor or time period for distribution will kill the greatest source of new donors and new money to the charitable economy. So I'm, 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 I'm going to ask a few questions and ask the two of you to sort of weigh in on this because um, I, I will uh, tell you I have a perspective on this, and, and I don't think that it's, it's one that is biased by the fact that I'm CEO of a donor-advised fund. Uh, because I, I came to this specifically because donor-advised funds are growing, because uh, f uh, families and individuals, philanthropists, are choosing this as a vehicle. They are finding it to be a convenient way for them to not be rushed into giving, but to be able to be strategic, to sit back, to think, to maybe perhaps plan for uh, longer-term uh, giving. But, but I actually just want to ask a, a, a question for both of you to weigh in on, because I find the debate to be an interesting one, uh, because much longer in this country we have had private foundations um, who do have a spend-out rate of 5%, but not a give-it-all-away in five to seven years. So a question that I have is, why a different set of rules for donor-advised funds? Why would donor-advised funds need to empty their coffers and private foundations would not? It probably makes sense, uh, Rob, for me to take the first whack at that since I'm advocating for that. And again, the five Go for seven it. years. 
five to thank you five to seven years i think is too you know is tough i think uh, i'd go with 15 as my sweet spot but you're uh, it's it's fairly typical ted uh to compare donor advised funds to private foundations but i think that's the wrong comparison uh donor advised funds give donors the same charitable deduction that they would get for giving the money you know directly to the local soup kitchen or to the boys and girls club so the so whereas uh giving to private foundations uh there are some tougher rules that, um for example you cannot give appreciated stock uh or appreciated assets to donor uh, to uh, a private foundation and get market value uh, deductibility um as you could for a public charity because donor advice funds are consi- con- uh, considered a public charity, really the comparison should be to um, you know the actual operating organizations. I am not going to put myself in a position to defend uh, the status quo with private foundations. I actually think there's an extraordinary amount of overhead and waste there. Uh, I think the payout rates are uh, too small, and that an awful lot of money is piling up there and I, I wish that the model of private foundations when it was when they were established 100 years ago were different um, I suppose I advocate for getting money into the community where they can do good where they can be invested in people uh, you know adults and children and into the the planet uh, to save us from, uh, from from environmental degradation uh, so so you know I think in general money should you know, be going out to good purposes more quickly. But because donor-advised funds are treated as a public charity, I think they should be, the money should be going uh, significantly more quickly than from private foundations. Rob? Well, the first thing I would say is that there are no credible studies that show that donor-advised funds are cannibalizing any direct gifts to other charities. Um, In fact, the Atlas of Giving shows that donor advice funds boosted giving to nonprofit organizations during the recession and the post recession period. Um, donor advice funds are bringing in new donors. They are the 21st century version of private foundations. Um, they, donor advice funds um, are. Are uh, have been in the last since well since 2009 um, donor advised funds largely have been the contributor to the fact that um, in through 2015 uh, giving has grown in the United States and 2009 of course was the depth of the Great Recession but donor advice funds have been a significant contributor um and I'm talking about grants to don from donor advice funds I'm not talking about grants to I'm not talking about gifts to donor advice funds but grants from donor advice funds have contributed to a 51% increase from 2009 to 2015 um that Continues to grow. I mean, ninety. Uh, one of the one of the non-commercial uh, donor advised funds is the Silicon Valley Foundation, and and uh, they report that ninety six percent of their funds are making gifts to charitable organizations each year. So. Um, this is a this is a tremendous tool. It's better than a it's better than a charitable remainder trust. It's better than a private foundation. It's better than an annuity trust. Better than a lead trust, and better than a pooled income fund. It yeah. in this in this environment, donor advised funds are leading the way, especially when the stock market is robust. They are leading the way in charitable giving. Um, so, gentlemen, can, for me, I think um, I think both sides come at these topics uh, with a blind spot or state a position and then have to support it at all costs, rather than approaching it from a, a measure of fairness. So, I, I'd like to ask both of you 
to respond to is what I would consider to be the measures of fairness. So let's say donor-advised funds should be seen more as private foundations. They certainly act as many private foundations, and for many families who would never have the resources to be able to create a private foundation, they act uh, through donor-advised funds as if they were granting in a thoughtful way the way we would expect private foundations do. However, uh, donor-advised funds grant out at a higher rate than the 5% that average private foundations do. So one measure of fairness would be to say that that perhaps Perhaps private foundations have a 5% uh, payout, which is too low, and that donor-advised funds should have a similar payout to whatever is then uh, required of private foundations. So that's sort of one side of the fairness issue is that they would be treated the same and that the numbers would would sort of regulate or look at moving money out of those uh, sort of uh, money set aside for philanthropy. Uh, The other side of fairness would be to say, as was stated here, uh, that they are 501c3 public charities and that that money should uh, not just sit in in that charity but should move for charitable purposes. So the measure of fairness on that side would would be to say that no 501c3 nonprofit organization should sit on an endowment, should hold money for more than a certain number of years, and that all money of all nonprofits, all 501c3s, would be spent in a similar way, why would donor-advised funds be be singled out? So all charities anywhere in the country would have to spend their money at the same rate. Those would be two measures of fairness if you look at those on both sides. So I'm going to ask, as we've gone in, in this order, we'll go in the reverse order. I'm going to ask Rob to respond to the fairness issue, um, and then we'll give Alan a chance. Uh, Relating to fairness, I think that uh, it's been very well documented that donor-advised funds are, on average, giving um, four or five times the amount of grants to charities that, that, as Alan said, 100-year-old private foundations are giving. And that's much more beneficial to the charitable economy. So uh, I, I think that that's a great case for donor-advised funds. I would say, I, I mentioned a moment ago the uh, Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Um, when they looked at um, w- when they looked at their their donors, they found that um, they had one donor who had not made any um, grants from their donor-advised fund. Other charities, and um, because of their rules, they they um, made the decision that they were going to take control of that money and award it to community to community interest, which they did. And so, I I would say that you know self regulation is better than government regulation. That's that's one significant uh, issue here. The other is that private foundations are outperforming um, uh, uh, donor advised funds are outperforming um, uh, private foundations at, in granting their assets um, at a measure of five to one, and it, that's great. And we shouldn't do anything to stop that. In fact, we should do things to encourage that. Let's say, as been suggested here, that that's the wrong measure, Uh, that they shouldn't be seen in that regard, but they should, uh, in fact, uh, be seen as 501c3 nonprofit organizations. Therefore, would it not be fair to say that every charity anywhere would have to spend all of their assets and all their money uh, in the same five to seven years, 15 years? In other words, they would have to show that they're not holding money for a longer period of time. Well, you know, as a as a board member of several different 501c3 charities, as a um, uh, C-suite executive at one of the largest charities in the United States, I can tell you that... Um, Money, as Alan uses the term, is warehoused. Um, 
in endowment that that is perpetual. So um, no, not a, not a hundred percent of the money that is given to any large organization is guaranteed to go out for their mission immediately in the same year or in two years. Okay. Uh, Alan? Um, Yeah, I'd just like to um, uh, shine a light a little bit on some of the the figures that Rob used. And, um, you know, statistics are... You know, uh, statistics are can be used in different ways. Um, Rob said that, first of all, the giving from donor-advised funds, um, I think, has been exaggerated, the giving rates. Uh, he put it at four or five times, which uh, the private foundations, which is 20 to 25%. Um, I will note that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there have been various figures. The National Philanthropic Trust itself a major a major sponsor of donor-advised funds, puts out an annual survey. And a couple of years ago, they changed the formula by which uh, they counted the spend-out from their funds. And uh, by simply changing the formula, it went up by about 5 or 6%, from about 15 or 16% to about 21%, because they used a different base for the assets. They use the beginning of the year assets as opposed to the end of the year assets. I'm not saying they're wrong, but that's quite a variation. Um, there, uh, well, that, there was a, there was a, you either granted the money or you didn't. Yeah, but if the question is if you're granting the money and uh, the denominator of the equation is the money that was there at the beginning of the year or the end of the year makes a very big difference. Um, a study by the IRS. Well, well, well uh, certainly private Paul, foundations use the number that's most advantageous for them. With private foundations, it's regulated. It's it's established by um, the regulations as the money at the beginning of the year. Um, I will say, um, and and I will say that um, uh, uh, Paul Arnsberger from the IRS uh, did his own study, and he came up with a figure of seven percent. Okay, which is vastly different. And and I'm not I'm not five. a I'm not a, I'm not a data guy, uh, but before we say it's four or five times or it's 25 times, Fidelity Charitable uses its own formula that it made up in which where it uses a five-year trailing average for the uh, size of its assets, which greatly inflates the rate by which they distribute the money. So it's not as though there's legislated um, there's a there's legislated formula for how to figure this out. Um, the, the, the second aspect but, 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 about thinking Alan, about can I just ask you, there sure, is no sure. study that shows that donor-advised funds grant less than private foundations. No, no, that's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, but there are funds within donor-advised funds that don't grant out anything at all. Um, a different congressional study uh, from uh, from a couple of years ago, from 2012, you know, postulated, and we're not saying this happens, but there are certainly individuals for whom it happens. It said if you had 10 donor-advised funds of the same size and two of the people put out 80%, which I know from experience, I have clients who do that, uh, individual donors who put the money in and it's very advantageous and it's very clean and then they could use donor-advised funds to, you know, to, to keep track of their contributions, and they essentially clean out the fund. If two of the 10 Put money out at eight, put out eighty percent of the money, and the other eight of the ten uh, put out zero dollars. Then, on average, it would be sixteen percent. And I have two issues with this. One is, um, should we be giving a charitable deduction to somebody who puts nothing out the door from a donor advised fund for years at a time, or only puts out one or two percent? Why would we be giving them such a significant charitable de- deduction at the time of their gift? Um, the same as if why would a family who wanted to fund something larger and perhaps uh, put that money aside for two, three, five, seven years and then fund something significant? Why should they be at a disadvantage? Well, I, I, I'm I'm all with you, Ted. Uh, to you know, five, seven years—that's what we were talking about. I mean, as I talk to donors, most of them are actually, and I, uh, most of them are actually 
fine with a 10 or 15 year spend down because most of them do intend to get it out the door. Um, But there are some people for whom the money money sits there. And the fact is there's a lack of transparency because these are, because the sponsors are, are public charities. We cannot know. I'm sure we get reports from Silicon Valley Community Foundation or from Fidelity of what's happening in their funds, but we do not have access to an account-by-account enumeration of what is going out the door there. So back to the issue of fairness. So you are suggesting that all 501c3 uh, nonprofit organizations would need to attest to the fact that they are spending out all of their money in the same schedule that donor advised funds would be held to. Well, actually, actually, Ted, you're putting words in my mouth, and I, no, I, I was saying, I was crafting. I'm asking I was crafting you to respond dodging, to that. I was dodging your question. I was but only because I, I needed to respond to. Um, I wanted to respond to the issue of payout because um, that's kind of core to what we're talking about. I think these are separate issues. I think how foundations send their money out the door, the, you know, need to be looked at. Um, uh, do I think foundations uh, should be allowed to use some of the five percent payout? to cover their administrative costs and have very large offices with very high salaries? No, I think those should be looked at um, in a, as well. Uh, do I think a multi-billion should be encouraged to spend the money out more quickly? Yeah, sure, I actually do. But I think those are separate issues. I do not think you can tell a, uh, a nonprofit with endowments that were established in perpetuity to spend it down. And I think that kind of changes the subject from donor-advised funds. Um, I think donor-advised funds in many ways are a unique fish in the pond because they get the benefits of um, – they provide certain public charity benefits to the donors, uh, but they're, they're, they're not held accountable. They're not um, – they're not. Uh, they're. They're. You know. They're making a lot of money. This is my other major issue. Uh, they're making an awful lot of money for uh, financial institutions, uh, for brokers. Uh, the money that is sitting there is being invested in uh, fees are being paid to uh, individual donors, financial managers. Uh, they're making a lot of money for financial firms, and uh, I think it's unseemly at best. But I also think it's very disruptive to the philanthropic uh, infrastructure. Well, okay, let's let's go back to this issue of um, if they are not private foundations but they are 501c3s, why would not all 501c3s be held to, accountable to the same standards? Well, because other 501c3s, Ted, are providing services. Yeah, you know, they're educating I would children. suggest that they're curing advice funds. Cu- yeah, go ahead. The significant, the you know, these other organizations are are delivering services, and their boards may choose, or their donors may choose, to have some of the money held in in endowments or 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 go to capital projects. But there is there is a mission focus, and one of one of the points in Roger Colinvo's piece is that a legitimate. Um, reason for an organization to have 501c3 status is to collect money and then distribute it. The key is then distributing it. A United Way collects money and then distributes it. What would happen if a United Way held on to the money and only distributed 5, 10, even 20 percent? Yeah, well, people would be rather hold upset. On to significant, they do hold on to significant amounts of money. Um, and they have specific purposes for that, and their board of directors have deemed that that is healthy and advisable for that nonprofit to manage themselves in that way. The, the point is, and, and this is particularly the case with the commercial gift funds, Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, and there are dozens of others. When the major, and, and both of you were involved in funds yourself, and, and I'm not being accusatory here. I think you're providing a really important service. If I were to come into uh, a significant liquidity event, I, I, I would personally use a donor advice fund because, as you say, you can be you'd be more thoughtful about getting the money at that, at the door. But I would do it within a few years. Um, but the, the point the point is, if the only reason to exist is to get the money to charity, then the money should go to charity. Right. That's the only so reason comparing- that you get a five hundred one c three. Right. So what about comparing donor-advised funds uh, to community foundations? 
which they certainly act as more national community foundations. Um, how would that evaluation, and would you say that donor-advised funds are being evaluated against the way you would expect uh, community foundations to manage themselves? Well, of course, donor community foundations, um, uh, for the most part, were were uh, were among those who created donor-advised funds, and a generation right. ago, right. virtually all donor-advised funds were held at community foundations uh, or at religious federations. Um, the big turning point was 1991 when Fidelity Charitable uh, got IRS, uh, the IRS benediction as a public charity to create uh, Fidelity Charitable. Um, and suddenly then uh, it became an industry with, um, with a, different, uh, a different flavor. And, um, I, I, and, and I, I would say an industry that has been very, very and this is strictly from a data point of view, that has been very, very beneficial to the charitable giving economy. Donor advised funds appeal to people who have strategic giving goals and who prefer to remain anonymous. Um, it's no wonder they've become so popular. With Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab, the sales force, and this is a very important point, the sales force for major gifts is more than 150 times what it was for nonprofit organizations alone. So we've got you can say what you want about uh, you can say what you want about how people are compensated at Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab, but the truth is that the sales force has increased by 150 percent um, versus nonprofit um, people who are out there raising money. And just just to provide a little background here. Um, Donor advised funds um, are, are are gaining ground. Donor remainder tr- uh, charitable remainder trusts are losing ground. Private foundations are gain- are gaining ground, but at a third of the rate of of donor advised funds. Charitable um, lead trusts are losing ground, and pooled income funds are losing ground. So clearly, the 21st century um, um, uh, innovation, and I say innovation, donor-advised funds have existed since the Tax Act of 1968. And Roger is, uh, 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 Alan is exactly right that in 1991, uh, Fidelity recognized an opportunity and took advantage of it, and it is benefiting all of uh, all of our charitable economy. Right. Well, and, in fact, um, donor advised funds have existed in some form since the 1930s, uh, and it was really the the Pension Protection Act of 2006 that really defined what a donor-advised fund is and set forth certain expectations of how a donor-advised fund is going to manage itself. And I think it's those regulations that really define the the difference of, and, and Alan had mentioned earlier that, you know, I think maybe inadvertently you said, you know, donor-advised funds are a different animal. And I think they are not private foundations. They are not solely 501c3 organizations. They are not solely community foundations. Uh, they are this um, innovation, if you will, although, as I said, they've been around since 1930s, um, that do meet the needs of many donors, uh, individuals and families who wish to be strategic, who wish to have the assistance of advisors uh, to help them in their giving. And I think what, one of the things I'd like you folks to respond to is this notion of, uh, because Alan had mentioned, you know, well, all these other 501c3s provide service. I think donor-advised funds do provide service, and they provide service to the donor uh, who is um, maybe not as well-versed on, on how to give to one charity over another or does not feel that they have the information to discern whether I should give to this charity or not, or maybe this charity is particularly persuasive but not 
not very efficient or effective. And this uh, this charity over here is very efficient and effective, but doesn't have a way to have a voice. And I think donor advised funds and the advisors who are able to look at a wide variety of charities who are able to add value to the discussions and help donors in making their choices um, it is a service to the sector. So well, let's I start with Alan. I would add let's to start that, with Alan Ted. on that. Yeah. You 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 were talking earlier, Ted, or asking about community foundations uh versus the national uh, uh national uh donor advised funds. Um and I think your argument makes sense when you're talking about community uh community foundations where people can indeed talk people who are knowledgeable about philanthropy in their area and donors can get some good advice. Uh I think I think it's a, a, an enormous stretch to say that if you set up a fund at one of the uh, you know, at Fidelity or Schwab, that you get any sort of advice. What what you get is a tax deduction, and you get tremendous help in liquidating appreciated securities and sending out checks. They're very efficient and all that sort of thing. But I don't, you know, I, I you know, I will, I will say this as well. Going back to uh, what Rob was saying about the, the the sales force multiplying by 150 times, you're right, and I think that's been certainly a major driver in the growth of donor advised funds but we ought to look at this i you know maybe maybe i'm a pollyanna but you know i work for you know i've i'm a member of the of the uh, uh afp and part of the standards for professional fundraisers is we don't get paid a commission um you know you get paid a salary to help the organization and the donors and do right by both um look at the dynamics if if i am your financial advisor at a brokerage, at a financial firm, and you are you are inclined to give a hundred thousand dollars to a building project at the Boys and Girls Club. Well, I actually have a vested interest in telling you, suggesting to you not to do that, but instead to put the money into the commercial gift fund associated with my firm, because then I will continue to draw a fee for assets under management. And moreover, the longer the money sits there the longer I draw a fee. Now, this is getting money into the charitable sector, but I would right. – I feel strongly the, that if the money is sitting do, there, yeah. it's it's not doing charity any good, and it's certainly not helping that Boys and Girls Club to build their new Alan, building. Alan, well, are, let, are, let, are let me, you let, suggesting – Yeah. go ahead. Let, let me suggest that um, in my own family I'm, – I'm in my mid-50s. I That's have four children – uh, I have four children that are in their 20s. Um, if I were to create a donor, using your example of the Boys and Girls Clubs, if our family decided that we wanted to build a special building or a new location for Boys and Girls Clubs in our hometown, uh, a donor advice fund would be the perfect vehicle for doing so. Because we could add to the donor advised fund each year, the the funds in the donor advised fund would be invested to grow, and when we reached our goal, we could then make, um, and it might take more than 15 years, Alan. The mm-hmm. it, it might take more than 15 years, but but our goal would be our philanthropic goal would be accomplished. And that's that's why I think that – and by the way, donor-advised funds are able to take very difficult assets that private foundations cannot take, that many 501c3 organizations cannot take, and that's things like um, non-publicly traded um, stock for, or or businesses – and that that's a huge advantage so that um in in my case of the boys and girls club i i, I frankly own um i own several businesses but one of them in particular um i i would make a significant contribution at the time that i'm gone to the donor advised fund to help meet the family's goal of providing a new boys and girls club facility Right. Let, let me let me just jump in here, gentlemen, because um, Alan made a statement there that that I just I, I just want to sort of explore. 
because you're, you're suggesting that the the uh, economics here are putting the uh, um, advantage to an advisor's sort of hoodwinking their 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 clients into putting money into a fund that looks like a charitable donation but isn't really moving the money to charity and i and i have to tell you i work in this sector i work with a lot of advisors and part of what we have been successfully helping them understand is to just get philanthropy on the table to that discussion i will tell you that it is far less likely that an advisor is going to advise a donor to put money into a donor-advised fund with sort of the back pocket um, suggestion here that, oh, I'll make some fees on on that money. They're far more likely to make a suggestion that they adv- that they invest it in another way that they're going to make far greater fees on. So I, I think in, unless there is empirical information that is stating that a large number of donors are actually don't know that their money isn't going to charity um, and, and are being talked into moving money into donor-advised funds solely for the purpose of creating fees for, for their advisors, I don't see where that is actually the case. What is actually the case is that by making philanthropy um, a, a possibility within the discussion, these advisors are actually bringing philanthropy up in a way that is moving more money into the philanthropic sector, that we have very smart people throughout the financial industry that are even thinking about philanthropy now. was not even on the table, not even think about it, maybe some very large families, it eventually came up and might be creating a private foundation. It is now more, if you will, small-D democratic, in that more people are being presented with philanthropy being a real option as part of their financial planning than ever were before. And when they're presented with that as an opportunity, donor-advised funds get funded. Well, you know, first of all, I never use the word hoodwink. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that you did. I, I, know, I, I, I know you were sounded reading that. like that people weren't yeah. really aware of what was happening, and I think they are it's, quite it's, aware and find it to be it, very efficient. Look, I respect financial incentives. I always ask when I get involved in a financial discussion, with a, whether it's personal or professional, I like to ask people, "How do you get paid?" Are you being paid by the hour? Are you being paid for transactions? Are you being paid by funds under management? And when folks are working in the financial sector and when they're being compensated for funds under management, they're, they're very aware of this. And if you go to the commercial gift fund sites and go to the section for advisors, there are always references to how the funds will be considered funds under management, which is to say you will continue to get draw a fee. So it's not the motivating factor, but I – I would assert that it has to be for many of them uh, uh, a reason uh, why they why they are um, uh, why they are encouraging their donors toward donor advised fund. This is human nature. Um, I I also think the definition of philanthropy is something that should be looked at. It's probably a good thing for another podcast. But you know, philanthropy means you know helping humankind. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean setting up a philanthropic institution uh, for a long time so our family can give from it. Um, uh, you know, I think the, the, the notion of dem- democratizing philanthropy, you know, it's a good one. It's hard to be against democratizing anything, uh, certainly philanthropy. But the same family could be giving the money away uh, and having it do good rather than looking at the fund and getting together every year to discuss how to distribute money from the fund. Mm-hmm. And finally, for to, as to Rob's point about the Boys and Girls Club, and he and I are about the same age. He has more kids than I do. Um, but I can totally relate to that. And I, I really think, you know, as I've, I've talked to a lot of donors, some of them get mad at me for writing what I say. But 95% of them say, oh, if you give me 15 or 20 years, sure, I can get that out the door. And you can build the Boys and Girls Club. I, I think it's not asking too much. In fact, it's asking um, exactly the right thing to say, sure, think about this, um, get together, figure out your priorities, and then get it out the door. You could do it in small grants. You could do a big thing like building a wing to the Boys and Girls Club, but get it out the door within a certain number of years. 
and, and again, I'm just going to go back to I think that's absolutely fine. I think either either way that you look at it, that there should be a higher payout for private foundations and donor-advised funds, treat them like donor, like private foundations, or if you're going to treat them like 501c3s and say the money should be out the door, I think all 501c3s should be held to the same standard. Uh, that, that all nonprofit organizations should be spending money in their communities at a rate that somehow we're making a decision that donor advised funds should. Because I think that what has happened in this country is that we have far more uh, uh, ph- philanthropists, if you will, uh, individuals, families, people um, who are using donor advised funds who have the luxury and the ability now to research and to find that exact philanthropic activity that they would like to support. I will tell you that one of the changes that I see, and I've been in this industry I think as long as you gentlemen have, uh, is that, that when you are sitting in front of a very good fundraiser who happens to be very persuasive, that may or may not be the best place for you to put your money. But at that particular moment, maybe you feel a little bit pressured, maybe it's peer pressure, maybe it's community pressure, you feel that you need to give. Whereas people who have already donated that money, already gotten the tax deduction, are far more thoughtful, ask far more questions, do more Internet searches um, when they're giving than someone who is giving in their community and maybe doing it more uh, in reaction to an ask as opposed to being thoughtful in their own giving. And for me, that, I think, is a very powerful um, uh, new wave in the philanthropic community, that it's not about the charity asking for money or the charity going to the donor, but it's the donor now in the driver's seat who is now, if you will, again, back to sort of the small-D democratic uh, nature of philanthropy today. And I think the, one of the biggest driving forces here, and we can say it's donor advisory, I think it's more the Internet. I think it's more the desire of donors to be very impactful, to be very thoughtful, and to sit back and decide when they want to give. And it may not coincide with the need to make that gift by December 31st. And just writing a check to a charity, a local charity, or somebody who I got something in the mail from uh, may have been what I did in the past. But now I can make that gift, and I can sit back, and I can take my time to decide where do I want that gift to go, what meets my goals, my family goals. And I, I see that as, I hope, part of the discussion, John. And we've got five minutes left here on the show. So I, I, this goes by so fast. Um, and you guys have both been very, very thoughtful. But as this discussion moves in one direction or another, I don't think it's a matter of a payout or a timeline. I really think that the discussion should be around what is making this so palatable and so interesting to donors that they are giving, they are giving more, uh, and they are moving money out. So I'm going to ask each of well, one of you, just as I did when we started, to ask you to do two things for me as we wrap up the show here. One is your final statement, um, and each one of you have about a minute, so because we're now about three and a half minutes on the show. Um, and then how can my listeners reach you if they want to reach out to you? So, Alan, I'm going to let you go first. Sure, thank you. Um, well, of course, it's, it's it's a wonderfully attractive thing to donors. That's why it's been successful. It's a it's a you can have your cake and eat it too uh, a, a mechanism where you get the full charitable deduction, and then you don't have any requirement to give uh, that year, next year, or or ever. Uh, I, I'm just I am asserting that we need to make sure that those those funds are given out so they actually do some good. And I will just add one last thing. Yes, donor advised funds or their sponsors have 501c3 status, but in a way, you know, you wonder whether they should have gotten that designation. It was kind of a quirk of negotiations back in 1969. And how can my listeners reach you, Alan? Oh, I'm sorry. The um, best way is to email me. Uh, it's uh, al, A-L, at Alan Cantor Consulting, and that's A-L-A-N-C-A-N-T-O-R, consulting.com. Terrific. And, Rob, round us out here. We've got less than two minutes, um, but okay. I want to make sure you get the, the last word here. Well, donor advised funds have led the charitable giving recovery since 2009. They're adding billions of new dollars and thousands of new donors into the charitable giving economy each year. They are outperforming any other type of planned gift. And I would say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Allen represents a group that has a solution in search of a problem. 
Um, donor advised funds appeal to people who have strategic giving goals who prefer to remain anonymous, and that is part of their popularity. Um, the biggest problem with anonymity is that charities don't know how to find donor advised fund co contributors, and they absolutely hate that. Yeah. Um, and, and donor, Rob, how can I, I do need to wrap things up here? How can uh, my listeners reach you? Uh, very, very simple. Rob Mitchell at atlasofgiving.com. Terrific. Gentlemen, you both have been very thoughtful. Um, I think it's very important that we talk about these issues because it does matter to donors, and I think donor-advised funds are popular because donors need them to allow them to um, achieve their goals, and I think charities need to figure out how to work with donors uh, who are advisors to donor-advised funds. That's the end of our show. Please join us in two weeks for the very important tribute to Tony Elisher. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.